This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening. It's wonderful to see you all here. Thank you for coming out to our second God's Honest Truth. I'm sorry I couldn't be here for the first one, but I just want to go through why we're doing this, because I think it's important to kind of put that out there. So I've been your pastor here for almost four years, and ever since I got here, I've wanted to have the opportunity to have nights of storytelling where it's about you all coming up and telling your stories. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do that is because each week we get together in our sanctuary or in our chapel, and the fact is is that we can exchange some pleasantries, we can say hello to one another, but the truth is that I think that it's hard for us to really get to know each other and to really get into each other's lives in a meaningful way. And that's how we create community, isn't it? You know, by knowing about each other and being with each other and really knowing about each other's lives. And so that's the purpose of why we are here this evening. We're here to learn about each other and to know what's been happening in our lives. Tonight, we are going to be doing independence, stories about claiming people claiming their independence. And I hope that you know that each person who's coming up here, they are coming up and they want to give you their very best, and I know you want to give them their very best. So I want to lay out some rules for the evening so that you understand what we're here, we're doing tonight. So you're going to hear stories tonight that are going to make you laugh. They're going to make you smile. Some stories are going to make you cry. Some stories are going to make you want to clap. And I want to encourage you to do all of those things. All of those things. Whatever you feel, you can let that come out this evening. And following tonight, after the stories are done, there's going to be a reception out in the narthex in the parlor. Our storytellers will be out there. I hope that you will go and speak to them and talk to them about their stories and tell them what it meant to you personally. So, to begin tonight, I'd like to invite up Ellen Brault. She's going to be our first storyteller. Let's welcome her to the stage. Her story is Smile Through It. I don't remember why I started or why it seemed like a good idea at the time. I couldn't tell you when it took over or when I became a prisoner in my own body, but I can tell you that um, a veil of doubt, deceit, and denial veiled my life for a very long period of time. I have spent many hours over many years reflecting on my struggle with an eating disorder. I know it doesn't make sense not eating, vomiting after eating when I did eat, but I did both. Eating disorders are complicated, as most addictions are, and claiming my independence from mine was complicated as well. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself first. Um, I am the oldest of four children, raised here in Arlington Heights, had a beautiful 
carefree childhood with loving parents, and I'm also the oldest grandchild on both my mom's and my dad's side. Expectations, whether real or fabricated, have always driven my actions and decisions. I was an A student, listened to my parents, was always home by curfew, went to church on Sundays, always set a good example, always expected to set a good example. I craved my parents' praise and approval, which they gave me all the time anyways. They were always proud of me, no matter what, and they still are. But something broke inside of me entering my senior year in high school. I was facing a lot of uncertainty. Being the first person in my generation to set out to college, to choose a major, to leave my home, my family, everyone I loved. It was scary. <clears throat> I felt that mounting pressure looming over me. But realistically, my life at home was in chaos. My dad was going out a lot, which wasn't unusual, but he was going out a lot more. And he was going on walks, which was very unusual. And my mom was sleeping on the couch. She was trying to make up believable reasons as to why. But my parents' relationship was falling apart right in front of my eyes. And I didn't want to believe it. But in my heart, I knew. So I fell into a deep, self-destructive depression. I didn't know what else to do, how to handle this underlying uncertainty, going to college, the pressure of paving the way for the rest of my cousins and siblings. And maybe my behavior was a plea for attention in exchange for the pain I was feeling between my parents. Maybe it was a form of punishment for being unable to fix what was unraveling. Maybe since I couldn't fix it, I found relief in a twisted sense of control over my body. But in reality, it was a combination of all of them. But they were putting on a happy face, so I could too. But the weird thing about my eating disorder was that it was never about the way that I looked. It was always about control, feeling that my body was the only thing that I could control in my life. Ironically, by obsessing about these controllable behaviors, my life was spinning completely out of control. I neglected my responsibilities. I was crabby, mean, confrontational, moody, and emotional towards everyone, even the people that meant the world to me, my family and my friends. It's still a mystery how they loved me through the years that followed and that they still do today. Everyone could see what was happening despite my attempt at secrecy. My two best friends tried to intervene. My mom pleaded me, pleaded with me to stop. And even my younger brother approached me that people were talking about me at school. I couldn't hear what any of them were saying though because all I had was this numbness. I was slowly wasting away, pound by pound, tear by tear. The grasp on it had become like a new identity. I no longer knew how to think. I knew how, no longer knew how to feel. 
I know it's hard to understand, but I came, became addicted to the numbness, just trying to hide it and pretend like everything was okay. It was easier to act. It was easier to pretend. I sought therapy that summer so I could get better because my parents, of course, expected me to go away to college while my siblings stayed home and dealt with their divorce without me. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, I believe I gave therapy that summer a valiant effort. I did. But I was still holding on to some of those things as I ventured off to Augustana College. In this new place, though, with these new people, I could pretend like I had it all together. I'd be fine. I was super involved, developing new friendships, earning straight A's, of course. But unfortunately, I then added another ingredient to my recipe for disaster. I began exercising obsessively for hours with zero nourishment in my body till I was not even 100 pounds. One night in my dorm room, feeling weak, tired, and completely unworthy of life itself, I curled up into a ball on my dorm room floor and cried. I sobbed. And the girls on my floor, they heard me, so they all came over, they put their hands on me, and just let me cry. There was nothing they could do. It had to be me. So that summer, I committed to an outpatient eating disorder program, where I was a student of myself, as they say. I learned skills to cope with my pain in healthy ways, how to reframe negative, self-destructive thoughts, and how to face my eating disorder with courage and compassion. It helped. I felt like I had a grasp on my behaviors and headed back to Augustana in the fall. Sadly, my secret behaviors quickly and violently returned and silenced everything that I had learned over the summer. Only a few weeks into my sophomore year fall term, I drove home, ran to my mom, crawled in her lap. Confused and concerned, she held me while I said, I need help. I can't do this anymore. I checked into the hospital that weekend and was admitted into an intensive inpatient program at the hospital. That was hard work. I had to eat. I was forced to break habits that I didn't want to set free, but I did it. I wish I could tell you that this experience, this first try at a hospital in, for eating disorder treatment, cured me. Ta-da! I'm all better. No. The true challenge was continuing these new habits that I learned when I went back into the real world. Unlike an alcoholic who can eliminate alcohol altogether, I obviously couldn't eliminate eating and food. So mindful eating had to become an everyday priority. I then thought maybe some drastic life change would make the recovery process faster and easier. So I found myself engaged to a high school sweetheart who swept me off my feet, told me he would take care of me and make everything better. I was to be a marine wife six months later and move with him to Japan. 
with the stress of planning a wedding, a wedding that I was constantly second-guessing, I began to spiral back into my eating disorder behaviors. <clears throat> Needless to say, I called off the wedding, and 10 years later, I'm getting ready for my real wedding. I returned to Augustana later that year, but eventually needed another try at the inpatient program. Life is what you make it. It's a quote I wrote in my journal while I was at the inpatient facility. There will always be circumstances that are out of my control, whether it's parents getting divorced, relationships falling apart. But I would like to end with a passage, um, with the passage, life is what you make it, that I wrote in one of my personal journals. So like I said, it was while I was in my inpatient facility for the second time, and I felt it was time, time to claim my independence from the eating disorder. So on May 6, 2009, <clears throat> I can choose health and happiness. It's my decision. It's my responsibility to see the positive side of bad situations, to not be so hard on myself, and keep moving forward. I need to take care of myself, show myself the same compassion that I feel is important to show others, treat myself with love and respect, patience and understanding, acceptance and forgiveness. If I am not practicing these values on myself, how will I ever be able to express them to others? My health is what needs to come first in order for me to see the good in me, the good in others, and the good in the world. Happiness must come from within. Though relationships are important to me, I will not get anywhere in a relationship if I am not honest with myself. That's why I'm getting back on track and allowing myself time to stay on track before jumping right back into things. School, job, mission work, will all still be there. This is my time to be me. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. That's a good way to start, right? All right, now I'd like to invite to the stage Betty Arnold. She is going to be doing a story, Female Elder Elected. Give it up for Betty, ladies and gentlemen. Female elder elected. <clears throat> in um, 1855, settlers met in William Dunton's barn in Arlington Heights. And it, at that time, it was called Dunton. Arlington Heights came later. But it was at the, where Arlington Heights Road and Northwest Highway intersect. 
they discussed forming a church. They decided Presbyterian, and they formed Presby the Presbyterian Society of Dunton. Now, in 1856, the first Presbyterian Church of Dunton was formally organized, and the church was built on the corner of Dunton and Eastman. 110 years later, the first female elder was elected to the session. It was 1966, and female members of First Presbyterian insisted it was time for a woman to become a ruling elder and part of the session. It, they, it was time that they had an opportunity to serve their church in this way. To be elected, a candidate had to be an active church member, uh, had meet with the session, have their name presented to the congregation at a congregational meeting. The vote would be taken. Everyone would vote aye, and the candidate was elected. Democracy at work, sort of. <laughs> it didn't quite work that way when the first female was elected. The following story was told to me by a church member who was appointed ahead of a special committee when the female elder was to be elected. This is the story my friend told me. Because electing a woman had never been done before, the special committee was formed. There were three elders, the pastor. I know, we always have a committee. Uh, and five women, two choir members, a Sunday school teacher, a Sunday school superintendent, and the head of the ladies' aid. The head of the ladies' aid was appointed chairperson by the then pastor. He must have thought she could run a meeting. Uh, when the chairperson called the first meeting, she gave a prayer for guidance, asking that the committee would know the will of the Lord. Elder Jones spoke first. He stated that the first female elder must be a woman above reproach. The choir members gasped. <laughs> the Sunday school teacher rolled her eyes. And the Sunday school superintendent said, to my knowledge, every female member of First Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian Church is above reproach. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the ladies' aid president said nothing, but she thought, I've been told, Elder Jones, you're a sanctimonious so-and-so. The five women regained their composures, and the Sunday school superintendent suggested Dorothy Johnson to be the first female elder. Now, the, 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 the women had had their own meeting beforehand, and they knew that Dorothy would accept the nomination. Again, democracy at work, sort of. Uh, when... Uh, the men were not impressed, even though Dorothy was an exceptional woman. And Elder Jones made this objection. He said, since elders 
visit visitors and prospective members at their homes, it would not be seemly for a male and female elder to make these visits together. The men nodded sagely. <laughs> the committee discussed this for a while, and the chairperson called for a vote. Of course, it was four to five, and Dorothy Johnson would become the first female, <clears throat> first female elder. At the next congregational meeting, Dorothy was formally elected, and in her and she worked with the um, during her tenure she worked with the Christian Education Committee, where she instituted several programs that were beneficial to the boys and girls of First Presbyterian. Now the rest of my story is sort of sad, and it concerns Elder Jones. Mrs. Jones had inherited a family business, which Mrs. No, I got that wrong. Mrs. Jones had inherited a family business, which Mr. Jones had run successfully for many years. Uh, after a while, uh, they decided that it was time to reorganize, and Mrs. Jones had to sign many documents, and she thought this was a good idea because it would make running the business more efficient. Well, one day when Mr. Jones was at work, Mrs. Jones got a phone call from a travel agent, and she, the travel agent told her, your tickets are ready at the airport. And Mrs. Jones says, oh, thank you. Please tell me the flight number, the gate, and the time of departure. Well, Mrs. Jones took a cab to the airport, and there was Mr. Jones and his secretary. I told you it was sad. And no one took off that day. <laughs> the, the Joneses divorced and the business was sold. It is hoped that Elder Jones' relationship with his secretary in time became seemly and they spent the rest of their life living in a matter that was above reproach. Give it up one more time for Betty Arnold, huh? Just so you know, that's still a requirement today that we all be above reproach, right, when we call our officers. All right, I'd like to invite up next, we have Larry Olson. He's coming to the stage. Listen, let's welcome him up. His story is called degrees of separation. Degrees of separation. <clears throat> independence depends upon the person and the circumstance. And is independence possible or should we accept degrees of separation? Life is often a day-to-day -day event, kind of normal. 
Some detours along the way, perhaps, but nothing insurmountable. Education, careers, marriage, children all require decisions, but are they really decisions or just simply changes in direction or an alternative path just to fit the circumstance? Life can be a rather smooth journey, and indeed it can be a wonderful world. But it also has pitfalls. There are also obstacles, large and small, that we negotiate through trial and error. We make mistakes, but we learn from those mistakes. And we gain knowledge for the next obstacle that comes along. But then something hits, a big obstacle, and nothing seems to work. What we've learned in the past has no bearing on what it is that we're facing. Something so foreign and devastating that we're just left spinning in the wind and saying, what do we do now and where do we go from here? On August 1st, 2016, my wife Jan died of MSA, one of the rarest of neurological diseases. Multiple system atrophy has no known cause. There's no medication. There's no cure. The cells in her cerebellum became rogue cells. The protein structure of cell reproduction ceased to function the way it should, and then those cells attacked various aspects of her nervous system. The human body is a machine. It's a delicate, clever, brilliant, unbelievable machine. But it's a machine, and machines can have problems. This was Jan's struggle, but it was also mine. MSA probably occurred somewhere around 2006, but we didn't know it. We, there was something going on, but what? We went to doctors, and she had numerous tests, and nobody could have put a finger on what was causing the various aches and balance issues, tingling sensations, uh, just a fatigue, pains at different times. So we ended up on referral to go to Rush Presbyterian in Chicago in 2012, and again, tests after tests, and amazing tests. And they put a finger on it. They said, well, this is MSA. And two trips to Mayo Clinic confirmed our new normal was going to be quite a ride. We went back to some of her doctors that were still dealing with her symptoms and told them that she had MSA. And they said, say, what? And they admitted some, not all, some. Some admitted they had never heard of it. And this is 2013-14. It is that rare. I kind of pride myself in being able to fix things, but there's no fix to this. And there's no Control-Alt-Delete button to push. This was a slow decline. No way to push away the unimaginable when a breath away was a sob and a tear. She lost motor skills and more fatigue. Balance became another continuing problem. And walking became an issue. So with a cane, 
then to a walker, a wheelchair, and finally, last couple of months, mostly bedridden. It was difficult. And to indicate the slowness, my journal entry for July 4, 2016 reads eerily similar to what I wrote in July 4, 2015. So where's God in all of this? Probably where he always is, or where we allow him to be. And faith teaches us that God is always there. But there I stop and I think give word of caution, because I think we have to be careful what we interpret as God being always there. Once in a while, a person would say, well, this is God's will, and I bit my tongue, changed the subject, looked the other way, and because I was in no mood to pick a fight, but I think that's a cop-out. I think it's a cheap shot, because that's not my God. Two cars hit head-on. Was God driving the cars? No. People were driving the cars. People make mistakes. People make dumb decisions, and people also do very evil acts of their own accord. So in my thinking, leave God out of it. So was God to blame for MSA? No, I'm not going to go there. And was it something that Jan did that caused the disease? Medical science isn't going there, and I'm not either. It is a disease. And not God in a corner someplace pushing a button and looking down and seeing how these two people are going to handle it. So we lost a lot of independence to a medical condition. For many of the 58 years we were married, we did what we wanted to do almost when we wanted to. Had fond memories of camping trips with the kids and travel and watching them grow up, proms, weddings, grandchildren. And Jan and I were able to visit five continents. We traveled winter vacations. And recently, as 2009, we got in a motorcycle trip through the Rocky Mountains. We did what we wanted to do, but that luxury was gone. And now we were just looking for some degrees of separation. We did have time to talk and to think and to share. And there were some good times in the bad. Uh, people would come over and bring dessert, bring food. They'd bring a movie. Some would come play her piano. Some of her singing groups would come over and sing. And we managed to, again, find some degrees of separation. And unlike so many other people, we got time to say goodbye. Too many times. But we found some strength in those days, some independence, some, some degrees of, in, of separation. We were able to compartmentalize it once in a while, some of the time, not all of the time. And if I started to decline into a pity party or when we said, oh, why us, why me, why now, why this, and I'd hear somebody else and their problems and the situations they were facing. Came to realize real quickly that there's a lot of room on this road that we were traveling. So while God did not cause MSA, faith helped the family to find the courage and the strength to meet those days that melded into one to another with much, not much difference and a sort of a a, I'll say it, a real sick monotony to it. Looking back, 
Over two years, we were sustained by friends and family, and Jan's caregivers came every day. No task too big, no task too small, no task too difficult, and there were some difficult ones, and they did it with a lot of grace and commitment and love. Uh, they became members of the family. We still communicate. Medical staff from hospice was with us for that two-year period, on call, 24-7, and there were some calls 24-7, and volunteer would come just to be there, just to talk and uh, read with Jan or whatever. Caseworker would come once a week, assess where we were, where we had been, and where we're going, and what's ahead, and how we're going to get there, and to make some decisions that we never thought we'd ever have to make. Family and the pastors, we prayed for Jan to be released from this decline of her health. We didn't win. There wasn't anything to win. There was no battle. It was a road. We just taken the road, and it took a long time. And there is complete independence, and it came for Jan. And part of my funny Valentine took part of my life with her. And that's okay. That's the way it should be. And I'm okay with saying that I am okay most of the time. That with time I have regained some independence of my own, one step at a time, but the steps are lonelier. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. That's a hard story. And we, many people in here, in this room, walked alongside him through that. So thank you for telling that story. I think it's important for people in this room to hear, but also those who are outside of our community to hear what you went through through that. So thank you. Our next story is going to come to us from Jenny Dunn. And She's going to talk about being lost in Wonderland. Invite Jenny Dunn up. Welcome her to the stage. The jangling phone was an unusual sound in the office I shared with three other graduate students. And that day when I picked it up, I heard the voice of Mary Kirchhoff of the American Chemical Society on the other end of the phone. And she had called a few months earlier to offer me a fellowship in green chemistry from the society. And this time when she called, she said, would you like to go to Japan? And I said, yes. It's one of those times you say yes, and you just worry about all the details later. 
And what Mary was offering me was a chance to go to the first international conference on green chemistry in Tokyo in March of 2003. So I was really excited, but I was also a little bit nervous about going so far afield on my own. So, of course, the next step was to try to recruit a travel companion, uh, starting logically with my husband. But he was busy. <laughs> he couldn't come with me. Um, so I thought, okay, my parents. But my parents don't like to fly. So the 13-hour flight across the ocean was a little bit much to ask. So that didn't work out either. I called my mother-in-law. Uh, my mother-in-law was actually already living abroad, was not interested in going doubly abroad. So she said no. Uh, and then I thought about some friends. I had one friend pretty interested, but we had all just recently graduated from college. Uh, we, most of us didn't have spare time or spare financial resources for a trip to Japan. And so it was that I found myself boarding this plane alone, actually feeling a little dejected, um, having said goodbye to Chris. Um, but you know, I flew to Japan, got off the plane, and realized I could read very few of the signs. This was a pretty new experience for me. But thankfully, in the airport, there were enough English signs that I found my way where I needed to go. And soon enough, I found myself in what I now think of as the wonderland of Tokyo, with singing toilets, these uh, triangular rice cakes for, for snacks, and streets that are sidewalks that are so crowded, it's really tough to, to get by people, and I realized Chicago is actually not that big of a city. But while I was at this conference, I knew a few people. Uh, they kindly invited me to dinners and to social events, so I wasn't really on my own but I couldn't resist taking a few solo excursions in the mornings before the conference got started. And this is when I really came to understand the full weight of the fact that there are not many street signs in Japan. And I found this very challenging. Um, but I was not alone in finding this difficult. Uh, actually, hotels will give you this little business card that has the hotel, uh, a nearby landmark, and the network of streets around it. So you can hand that to your taxi driver in the hopes that you will actually make it back to the hotel after your dinner or meeting. And one time I found this, or the times that I really struggled with this was coming out of a subway station. You come out of a subway station, you don't know which way is north, you've never been there before. Uh, so what I found myself doing was going in the direction that felt most right, which was not very efficient. Uh, I would follow my map along and look for landmarks based on the map, and if I didn't see what I thought I should be seeing, I would just turn around and go back the station and proceed in a new direction, hopefully somewhat informed by what I had just experienced choosing a better direction. But all in all, this wasn't really very efficient, and so one morning I actually didn't make it back to the conference until about lunchtime. <laughs> but I did make it back. Um, so uh, soon enough the conference was over, and I set out entirely on my own by a bullet train to Kyoto. And Kyoto is a very lovely city, and I love to walk. And so I walked, and I walked, and I walked until my shoulders really hurt, and I had to sit down on a curb and cry. Uh, this happens to me once in a while, and I've been walking for a long time and carrying a backpack. And as I was growing up, my dad was always there to take my backpack. And then when Chris was in my life, he would take my backpack. But here, there was no one to take my bag, so I just had to have my little cry, take the ibuprofen, and just keep on walking. <laughs> Um, also in Kyoto, I was staying in a really nice little inn, and I realized uh, that I had no idea how to work the heating cooling device. It had a remote control with buttons, and I was too shy to ask the innkeeper for help with which button to press when, so I just kind of dealt with the ambient conditions 
in the room, which tended to get a little chilly. It was March. Um, so I was fine, though, at, at night because the bed had this amazingly warm duvet. It was nice and toasty all through, all through sleeping. I also uh, you know, struggled again with my sense of direction not being the greatest. One time I was pretty sure I was headed back to the city center only to turn around for some reason and see the tall buildings of the city behind me. So I had to turn around and go back. Um, but it was during this time that I actually really uh, started developing a really a sense of peace that was amplified when I visited these beautiful temples with just the first signs of cherry blossoms coming out. And I knew if I were just a few weeks later, I would have not been alone, but together with throngs of tourists enjoying these beautiful cherry blossoms. So overall, during this trip, I started to really you know, experience independence and enjoy it in a way that I hadn't really before. My next stop was a city called Nara, and Nara is famous for its sacred deer. My first encounter with these deer was when I was sitting on a bench reading my map, and probably futilely reading my map, and uh, the deer came, a deer came and grabbed a hold of my map. And so we did this little tug of war, and I won. I kept the map, but he did take a small piece of it. So I have in my scrapbook this map with the deer uh, teeth shaped cut out in the corner. <laughs> it has a place of honor. Um, but one, one evening towards, towards dusk, I was walking on the outskirts of Nara, and I heard this cacophony of hoofbeats, and I thought, what on earth? So I flattened myself against a wall, and about two dozen deer kind of ran past where I was standing and stopped just uh, past me at, at a wooded area. And I looked around the corner to see what had caused this stampede, and uh, there was a dog just running after these deer, clearly having the time of his life, basically herding them towards the woods. And so I thought, okay, now is gonna come the human running after this dog, because that's the only logical thing that would happen next. But I looked, and I looked, and no one was coming after this dog. There was just me and two Japanese women all watching this uh, whole scene unfold with a great deal of surprise. So I'm looking at the dog. The dog is looking at the deer, and I'm thinking, oh boy, he's planning his next step. And I just didn't want the deer to be harassed anymore. So I patted my leg for the dog to come to me just like I would do for any dog. Turns out that's the, the international sign for come for dogs. So he knew what I meant. He came trotting over very happily, and I just grabbed his collar. And I realized at that moment I had a Japanese stray dog, and I really didn't know what on earth to do with it. and just let it go. So I was standing there, and the two women came over to me, and thankfully one of them spoke some English. So you know, she said, why don't we go uh, to a police box nearby? They'll know what to do. So we walked over there, me holding the collar of the dog. And we get there, and she's explaining to the police officer what had transpired. And he's listening, and he held out his hand to the dog. So I handed over the dog, and uh, then he proceeded to thank me. And this woman was kindly translating for me. And he ended his thank you with, you are very brave. And I look at the dog, the dog is smiling, the dog is happy, he's not a dangerous animal at all. But I said, no, thank you. Um, and I went on my way, of course, now I was again lost uh, because <laughs> I hadn't planned on going to that police box at all. But I did, I did find my way back to my hotel. 
And looking back on this trip, I really look at it as part of the formative building of my independence because growing up, I'm an only child, I had a lot of attention. And then I went to college and within a few weeks I met a young man who I started spending a lot of time with and he's now my husband. So I never really had much time on my own, which I really count as a blessing. But on this trip, it was a blessing that I was completely independent in a new and wonderful world where I couldn't read much, I couldn't really talk to many people, I was eating new foods and sleeping on beds that were very different from my own. But I was completely fine. I was more than fine. I was great. Thank you. All right, now we're going to welcome up to the stage. Thank you, Jenny. That was excellent, by the way. I just want you to know that. We're going to welcome up to the stage uh, Mike Cooper, and his story is, I was a slave. Good evening, everyone. My name is Michael, and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and drug addict sober today through the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a slight effort on my part. My sobriety date is October 12, 1985, which means if I don't drink or pick up a drug between now and this coming October 12th, I will celebrate 32 years of continuous sobriety. Thank you. Thank you. Trust me, it's a God thing. Um, how did I get to be an alcoholic? Was I born that way? I don't know. Um, I do remember my very first drink. I was between the age of two and three years old. And we always used to gather over at my grandparents' house on the weekends. And the men would sit around the dining room table and they would drink beer out of these little tiny juice glasses, which to this day I cannot understand. I mean, if I'm gonna drink beer, give me the biggest glass you can find, you know? But one of these days, my uh, grandfather gave me a sip of that beer, and I still remember the taste to this day. It was bitter in my mouth, it was fizzy. I went running across the room, just wiping my mouth off, and I got to the other side, I turned around and came back and wanted more. Was I an alcoholic then? I don't know. My next recollection of drinking was when I was in seventh grade. My uh, buddies and I, we went over to one of our friend's house after school, uh, both of his parents worked, which is a little bit unusual back then. And uh, we decided we were going to raid his dad's liquor cabinet, which was nothing more than, the, you know, underneath the kitchen sink was where he kept all his bottles. And uh, so we pulled them all out, and right at that same time, the James Bond movie came out, Goldfinger. And, uh, you know, all the secret agent men, you know, they would very sophisticatedly pour their drinks into this nice-looking glass, you know, out of a couple of bottles. So we thought, we can do that. So we took bottles of scotch and tequila and rum and vodka and gin and started pouring into a, a very big glass. And, uh, you know, right after that, we all took a sip out of it and lied to each other that it wasn't burning our throats or our mouth and started running around the room pretending we were drunk. Well, a few more sips, a little more running around. It didn't take long for the alcohol to get into our blood system, and pretty soon we were drunk. It was at that point I went running across the room, uh, tripped over the threshold of his bedroom, and flew into the bed, 
and hit my head on the bedpost. And I just kind of laid there. Now, a couple hours later, his mom is rousing me out of the bed saying, Mike, are you okay? So my real first time drinking, seventh grade, and I have a blackout. Was I an alcoholic then? I don't know. I do know this, that at some point, drinking and eventually drugs overtook my life and became the most important part of it. I became an actual slave to the disease of alcoholism. You see, the disease is twofold. The first part is this physical allergy that produces the phenomenon of craving, which happens once I put the drink in. So I take a drink, and immediately I want another, and another, and another. And it would go on that way. I could go for two weeks, a month, one time even a year without drinking. But the minute I picked up that first drink, I wouldn't stop at one. Unlike you normal people that can have one, two, maybe even three, and say, you know what, I've had my limit, or I'm feeling a little dizzy, I think I'll stop. Not the case with me. I would go right on drinking. And what would happen is that I would somehow get into some sort of trouble, embarrass myself, um, or, or just become drunk. And this would go on and on and on. So after a while, you figure that I'd be smart enough to know, you know, if I don't pick up that first drink, I'll be fine. But that brings in the second part of the disease, which is the obsession of the mind that says, this time it will be different. You know, it's this little lie that I tell myself. You know, the last time when I drank, the beer was warm. Or maybe I was drinking out of bottles and I should drink out of glasses. Or I was drinking on an empty stomach. Or I drank or ate too much food before I drank. You know, I was drinking red wine, should have drank white. I was stressed out from work, from the family, you know, from finances. Whatever excuse I could tell myself. And I was so good at convincing myself of this little lie that I was also very good at convincing anybody else. And so again, I would pick it up and just start drinking. And then I would be right back into another drunk, more trouble. And it usually followed the next day of me uh, begging for forgiveness from my now ex-wife and uh, taking the alcoholic pledge of, I swear I will never drink again. And really meaning it too. Um, the, uh, over time, the drinking got worse and worse and worse. I eventually got into drugs with it as well. People would tell me, Mike, we think you've got a drinking problem. But I said, no, I, I couldn't be an alcoholic. You know, alcoholics were those guys on Skid Row, drank out of the bottles in the paper bags, had DUIs, lost families, businesses, driving licenses, jobs. I never lost any of that stuff, so I couldn't be one. Same with the drug addicts, you know? Drug addicts were ones that shot up with needles and syringes. I never did that, therefore, I couldn't be a drug addict. Well. The alcohol and the drugs, they were completely controlling my life. I couldn't go anywhere without having alcohol with me. I used to drive with it in the car with my three daughters sitting in the back seat, sipping out of my beers, thinking that they didn't see any of it. You know, we know that I was wrong about that today. Again, over time, I became emotionally unavailable to my family. I was no longer present for any of them. I was obsessed where I was going to get my next uh, drink and eventually drug. And this went on for quite a period of time. It also changed my life because to lead this kind of a life, I had to tell a lot of lies to cover up the lies to cover up the lies, you know, to stay out of trouble or to get my next drink. Um, 
every time too, you know, I mean, I'd go through periods of time where I'd start to do a little bit better, but then that obsession of the mind, that little lie would come back in and say, you know what, it's okay to drink. It's okay to pick up the drink or the drug this time. And it would be right back off to the races again. Um, and at this point too, the drug use got worse. Cocaine and other illicit drugs, they came into my life. My life had become completely unmanageable. I had lost the power of choice and I had to stop. But how? The alcohol and the drugs were my master. I was slave to it. And I thought that I'd never be able to regain my independence from those. And at that time, God stepped into my life through my family. There was family intervention that was done. You see, my father and I were business partners together. And of course, to uh, you know, keep myself in supply of the drugs and the alcohol, I was stealing money from the company. So he, he was able to find out about that. He sat me down and he basically said, you know, we'd like you to go see our family doctor about this. With the veiled threat, if I didn't go, that I would lose my job. Well, I didn't want to, I still wanted to fight it. But then this little voice came inside of me and said, Mike, go. This will be the best thing you ever did. Just say yes. And so I did. I come to realize now that that little voice was the voice of God talking to me. So I agreed to see the, the doctor, still reluctantly, and I put a tape recorder in my pocket because I knew I was being set up. So I went into the doctor's office, and he, of course, asked me right away, you know, Mike, how much do you drink and how often? And of course, I lied and said, you know, a six-pack every other week. And he says, okay. He says, and, and what about drug use? How, how, how often do you use drugs and how much? And I said, oh, you know, I experimented with those years ago, but I don't do any of that today. So he said, you know, I think you've got a problem with drugs and alcohol, and I'd like you to go to Lexian Brothers Hospital where they have this uh, alcohol and drug treatment program. I'm thinking, I got you right away on tape, you know, trying to railroad me through. But again, this little voice came inside of my head and said, Mike, just say yes, just go. And believe me, I don't hear voices inside of my head, but I heard this one loud and clear. And so I did. And that was the best thing I've ever done in my life because it was there that I was introduced to AA. And AA didn't just stop me from the drinking and the drugging, it changed my life completely. You know, there's an old expression that says, what do you get when you take away the booze from a drunken horse thief? Well, you get a sober horse thief. And that's what I had become, basically a sober horse thief because I'd become so selfish, so self-centered, so dishonest, fearful, that that ruled my life completely. I would lie, cheat, or steal to get my next drink or drug, to stay out of trouble, and all the focus was entirely on me. So when the alcohol and the drugs were removed, I still had this life that I'd been living for many, many years, and I was still all of those things, self-centered, selfish, dishonest, and fearful. And I had to put a lot of work into that. Today, fortunately, I allow people to see the real me. I used to try and show this individual out here of who I thought you wanted me to be, or this perfect individual, and I would lie to you every which way. Today, you get to see the real me. You like me, you don't like me, that's fine. You know? Thank you. The, uh, the biggest thing about this is in the process of it, I found my way back to God and made a real connection with God. 
one that I had never had before. And through it, that independence from the drugs and the alcohol, I finally was able to regain that. You know, in the morning, every morning, almost every morning, I get on my knees and I ask God for the strength and the willingness to stay clean and sober for the day. And then I pray to him for the strength and the willingness to do his will today, not mine. You know, and then I thank him for the day because I have so many wonderful things going on in my life. I've realized that alcohol was not the solution to my problems, but that God is. 2016 was a real tough year for me and my family. In uh, May, my wife Cindy and I, we lost our dog uh, Sadie, English Black Lab, 12, 12 years old, who was a very important part of our life. You know, we loved her dearly. And it was a, it was a huge blow to us. Then in November, um, I lost my best friend, the man who stood up at my wedding as our best man, my business partner of 40 years, my father. And we had developed a very loving relationship throughout the years. And then in the beginning of 2016, I had a bout with cancer and almost lost my life and still recovering now from all of that, you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And the wild thing about it is, not once, not even for a fraction of a second during any of this time, did the thought of picking up a drug or a drink ever cross my mind. But every day, God crossed my mind numerous times, you know? And I would thank him. I would thank him for allowing me to go through all of this. I thanked him for, for Sadie and what we had. Sadie taught me so much about unconditional love. Dogs will do that. My dad, the same man that I had stolen from 32 years prior, we developed the most loving relationship throughout the years. You know, we repaired everything. And he, he was my closest friend when he passed. And there was no regrets, nothing needed to be said between us. And then I thank God for everything that has gone in my, on in my life. You know, in my life I've talked about going to the gates of hell and swinging back and forth on them a few times, you know? And I never want to go back there again. But if I hadn't have gone through all of that, I wouldn't be as close to God as I am today. I truly believe that, you know? So I'm very grateful for what he does. Um, I still go to two to three AA meetings a week. That's why sometimes on Sunday mornings, people may see me walk into the service late because I go to one up in Lake Zurich on Sunday mornings. and. Uh, Sometimes after the meeting, somebody will want to talk, they're struggling with something, and for that, I'll be available for them. Uh, and so I'd like to end my story tonight by saying, too, that, you know, if you know of anybody that's struggling with drink or drugs in some way or another, that I'm available to speak with them as well, to share my experience, strength, and hope, and to let them know how I regain my independence from the drugs and the alcohol. So thank you. You enjoying yourself so far? All right. Well, we've come down to the last person who is sharing this evening. I don't want to show any preferential treatment here, but she's a wonderful person, and she also happens to be my wife. And I want to invite her up. This is Courtney Lang, and she's going to be talking about, but I'm not a creative person.
So first I want to say thank you to all who have gone so far. It's a complete honor to share this stage with you tonight. When I was 27 years old, I decided to throw myself my first birthday party since childhood. And I had a very specific vision for the party. The location was to be outdoors at Princeton Battlefield State Park. Most of the park was a sprawling grass field, but at the distant edge, far from the road, and nestled in this semicircle of pine and dogwood trees, were the remnants of several old marble columns where a house used to sit. And ever since I moved to Princeton, these columns captured my imagination. I would drive along that road in winter, a field of snow between us, the white snow, the white columns. In the summer, I would make these columns the destination of a long walk. And when I reached them, I'd lay underneath them. To me, they felt like an ancient Greek ruin. And when I sat beneath them, I felt transported. There was a second inspiration for the party, and that was a beautiful short novel by Paolo Coelho called The Alchemist. It is a fairy tale-like story of a young shepherd boy who leaves home and travels abroad in pursuit of his dreams. So I bought a bunch of copies of this book. I wrote my birthday party invitations on the inside cover. I distributed them to eight of my closest friends. And the vision for my party was complete. I was going to have a dinner party and book discussion underneath the columns. <laughs> so the night of the party arrives, and the logistics were not simple at all. Alex had to haul two large rectangular tables and 10 chairs across a massive grass field, including several large platters of Greek food and a glass dome with a chocolate cake. Guests arrived and they trekked across the field and sat down at this dinner table set underneath the columns. We sat, we ate, we talked, we watched the sunset. As it got dark and the moon and stars came out, we lit candles. The dogwood trees were starting to bloom in mid-May. There was a slight breeze and we had to flip cups like hurricane glasses to prevent the candles from blowing out. And this dear group of friends in their late 20s, inspired by the novel, which the majority of which had read, <laughs> um, had a very intimate discussion together of our life aspirations. And I like to think that someone driving along the road that night and seeing the glow of candlelight underneath the columns might have stopped and stared for a moment and wondered if they were seeing something sacred or magical in the distance. Because to me, it was. And the reason that this memory means so much to me is because I think of it as one of the few times in my adult life that I just let my creativity run free. Something that I had trouble giving myself permission to do. In fact, at the time that I threw this party, I did not think of myself as a creative person at all. And it may be in part from growing up the daughter of a mother who was a wonderful artist and could draw or paint anything I asked her to draw. I did not inherit her skill. 
I had far more of my father's logical, right-brained, type A personality. You know, the kind of person who thinks it's appropriate or even fun to give required reading for their birthday party. <laughs> I saw myself as an admirer of others' creativity, a lover of art history, a lover of art, but never thought of myself as an artist. My occupation as a university lawyer was always intellectually challenging, but not particularly creative. And as I transitioned from being a full-time lawyer to a full-time stay-at-home mother and part-time lawyer, I genuinely hoped that mothering would do something to nudge me in the direction of creativity. Mothers finger paint, mothers inspire their children, and I hoped I would be a creative mom. But in 2014, when I was a young mom with a toddler and an infant, and I was feeling sleep-deprived, my creativity was more elusive than ever. Here I was, working hard, trying to be energetic and fun with my kids. I was trying to work part-time, and around that time, we had recently moved to Chicago, and I was trying to support Alex in his first head of pastor position. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was putting all of my energy into supporting other people and starting to lose my own voice. So around this time, life got even harder because two relationship crises hit me at the same time and truly shook my sense of self. The first was a friendship, which ended abruptly right when I was beginning to feel at home in Arlington Heights. And with this friendship gone, it made me realize that my relationship with Alex had become incredibly strained by the minimal amount of time we were spending with each other. He was enthusiastically working at his new job, usually six days a week, sometimes more, um, missing bedtime almost every weeknight with our young children. I was, meanwhile, sleep-deprived, stuck in the house most of the time, especially during winter with a lot of sick children. I was feeling overworked and overtired, and even though I knew that I had close relationships all over the country, feeling so disconnected from my new town and my own husband left me feeling utterly lost. On the phone with some friends long distance, I joked, I think I have hit my midlife crisis at 35 years old. But I knew I could find my way out. I needed to find some way to regain my voice for myself. So during this period, especially in the winter with the snow, <laughs> tears, I'm a California girl originally, <laughs> um, tears came often, and just especially at night as I was trying to fall asleep. I was in the midst of a period of depression where I was really questioning my major life decisions. Was it the right choice to move here? Was it the right choice for me to stop practicing law full-time and stay at home with my kids? I wasn't sure if I had made any of these decisions correctly, and it would eat away at me as I was trying to fall asleep at night. Um, however, on one of these nights, as I was laying in bed and trying to fall asleep, my head in a fog, I had this surreal experience of words being spoken straight from my head to my heart. And I felt like I've got to write these down. Um, but I guess I'm an old millennial. I don't really use paper. So I grabbed my phone, 
and I start to type them in, and it was just this flow of information, and I type it down, and when I grabbed my phone and I looked at what I had written, it was this short poem, and I was kind of shocked by it. Um, just stared at it for a moment. Um, it was the first poem that I had ever written for myself. Like, perhaps I had written a poem here or there at school, but I had never written one for myself. So that day was August 15th, 2015. And completely unexpectedly, I felt as though my voice had come back. And not just my personal voice, but my creative expressive voice. Um, perhaps because of growing up the daughter of an artist, I always wanted to find my creative outlet. I knew that I wasn't a painter or a drawer, but I knew there was something out there for me. And I felt like um, somehow I had found it. So since I wrote that poem two years ago, I've started a practice where I write at least one poem a week. And I've begun reading copious amounts of poetry, something that I never imagined doing. Before this time, I was not a poetry fan. Now you can find me at the Arlington Heights Library in the little poetry section. Um, I exchanged my weekly poem with one of my longest and dearest friends, who's also a writer. And earlier this spring, I had my first publication of a poem locally in the Daily Herald. And I truly believe that part of my process of healing from this difficult time that I've described to you came through the writing. Because taking this time to write and to have a practice of writing was an opportunity for me to express my talents and my gifts and to remind myself that I had a unique perspective to share with the world. I began to focus more attention on my own needs and taking care of myself. And when I expressed those needs to Alex, particularly my need to spend more time together as a family, he responded in amazing ways. And our relationship has grown in leaps and bounds since that time. So in closing, I'd like to share with you that very first poem that I wrote on August 15th, 2015 on the night that I found my independence. When your pain seems unending, uncontainable, pull back from your body, stare upwards, and drift high, high up into the sky. And when you've touched the cold expanse, look down and observe yourself. From the far reaches of space, your tiny human self, all curled up in a ball of feelings. And think how beautiful and compelling it is to feel so deeply out in space, so cold and empty, to have a vessel filled with such feeling is something to envy. Thank you.
Let's give one more round of applause for all of our storytellers. Stand up if you told your story tonight. I just want to stand up if you told your story. These people who you see, they will be out there in the narthex afterwards. We are going, we've decided on the Adult Education Committee that we would like to have this four times a year, is what we're looking at, once a season. So the next time we'll be doing this is on Wednesday, October 11th. We haven't decided our theme yet, but uh, we hope that when we put the theme out there in September, that some of you will hear that theme and that you'll say, yeah, that I want to tell a story also. Uh, I think it's really amazing the vulnerability that people show in, in telling their stories up here, and it's a beautiful thing that brings us closer together as a community. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for listening to these stories, and I hope you all have a good evening. Good night. Thanks for listening, and if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.